0: Hello, friends and interiors. That was a little twist.
1: All right. Yeah.
0: Welcome to episode number 33 of Hybrid Unlimited. This is Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bo. Today we sit down with Francesco Catalano, which is our head nutrition coach at Hybrid Performance Method. And Ian Kaplan, who is our COO and resident brain Whatever that means, and today we have the privilege of sitting down with Dr. Eric Helms. Dr. Helms has been a coach and a meathead since the early 2000s. He is a professional bodybuilder and an author, as well as an impressive academic, having a master's in science, a master's in exercise science. And a second master's in sports nutrition, as well as a PhD in strength and conditioning, where he wrote his thesis on RER-based RPE for individualization and autoregulation, which we'll talk about in detail during this podcast. Um, You can say this guy is pretty much a master of all trades. Perhaps one of the things I love the most about Eric is that he doesn't take himself too seriously. He's extremely relatable and approachable. And you can tell this guy is genuinely passionate about fitness and helping others. On this podcast, we talk about the difference between velocity-based training, reps and reserve-based RPE, and percentages, what it means to be evidence-based, the importance of having a client-centered approach to coaching, and integrity in the fitness industry when it comes to monetizing in the space.
1: This podcast is brought brought to you by Ghost Strong Equipment. You guys know we always give it to you straight, and we give it to you straight when we talk about our sponsors, too. We never endorse anything that we don't wholeheartedly believe in, and we wholeheartedly believe that Go Strong Equipment is the best stuff out there. So, if you're interested in getting any sort of powerlifting or strength related equipment, if you want to get something custom made, if you want to have custom colors, you want to have your logo on it, you want to have your big dumb face on it, whatever you want, these guys can do it for you. So, check them out. They're at Go Strong Equipment on Instagram, and they're uh, go, www.gostrongequipment.com.
0: Hey, uh, you guys are gonna wanna take your pen and papers out for this one because this one's full of incredible, incredible uh, knowledge and and information. So get your pen and papers ready, uh, drink your coffee, and pay attention because this is a good one. So sit back and enjoy the podcast. What's up, Eric? Welcome to Hybrid Unlimited. How are you?
2: I'm I'm much better now. Of course, because you're Glad talking to, be to, here. to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your busy day to sit down and talk to us about random things related to training and fitness and nutrition.
2: That's what my career is. What being uh, online talking <laughs> about random things? So I'm, I'm good to go.
0: Reps and sets, right?
2: Reps and sets and <laughs> proteins and carbs and all the macrons. That's right. <laughs>
0: the only things in life that matters. Let's be real.
2: Oh, 100%.
0: (laughs) So uh, for our listeners, for those who don't know you, can you give us like a quick elevator pitch of who you are and what you're known for?
2: Absolutely. So I'm essentially just someone who fell in love with lifting weights uh, with an obsessive personality um, who decided not to develop develop any other life skills except for those related to lifting weights, uh, either directly or tangentially. So yeah, sometime in 2004, I started lifting, became a personal trainer after that. I started competing in um, bodybuilding and powerlifting first, uh, and then just kind of kept taking it further and further and further. It became my career, um, my way of expressing myself creatively, uh, my academic pursuit, and you know now kind of how I how I make sense of life in terms of uh, of meaning as well. So yeah, fast forward to 2020, I am a research fellow here at the Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. I'm originally from the states. Um, and I work with PhD and master students who are doing anything in the realm of being a meathead. Uh, so that could be powerlifting or bodybuilding related stuff, lifting related stuff, body composition, strength, et cetera. Um, and I've also started a few different, uh, companies and groups with colleagues, um, probably most known for, uh, 3d muscle journey, which is myself and my colleagues, uh, who are trying to make, um, a really positive impact on the lifting community especially for like natural bodybuilding and powerlifting. Uh, and my role is like the chief science officer. So I'm keeping us up to date, uh, making sure that we have truly evidence-based practice. Um, and then I also do that in other ways via my books, the muscle and strength pyramids, my research review with the stronger by science guys, Trexler and knuckles, as well as my good friend, Mike Zerdos. And I think the elevator probably doors are opening now. So I'll stop there.
0: No, that was, that was perfect. Um, man, how do you find time to do all of that? That's crazy. Uh,
2: you know, this is healthy dose of unhealthy level of obsession. You know, that's all.
0: Wow. I've always been interested in people like you, especially, you know, when I first started getting into fitness, you get this idea that most people who are ripped and are into lifting are meatheads only. So I think you and Lane Norton were one of the first people that I found out about in the fitness industry that had also brains.
1: Yeah, and I feel like well, you see you see a lot more of that a, now. A PhD in being a meathead.
3: Yeah, I love
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just went down the stupid path. Let me tilt my path. camera back a little bit.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh
2: my <laughs>
0: god! <laughs> I, but I have a room full of those. It's just it's not here.
2: You you're yeah. a part of the community of of ripped, incredibly strong, uh, and I'd, I'd argue in that that category, the top of the community, and also relatively smart doctor Cohen to a certain so. extent.
0: What uh, what was your PhD in?
2: It was in uh, broadly strength and conditioning and then specifically in um, utilizing RPE to auto-regulate powerlifting training. So I had to learn the very complex science of counting from one to 10 uh, and then asking lifters to rate the difficulty of their lifts on that scale. So some days, you know, I'm a little slow. I only make it to eight. They say oh, it's a nine RPE. And I said, oh, listen, I didn't take you know, physics or, uh, or, or, calculus or, you know, uh, history. So I don't know what you're saying. And then they look at me strange, and, <laughs> well, you know, it's all right. Do you think that it's one easy? data point doesn't get collected, but you know, we let's, talk.
0: Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Cause that's one of the topics that I had written down on my list. So RP versus percentage versus REI versus velocity based training. What's the T?
2: yeah so I think the, 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 the what we really want to do on a day-to-day basis with training is we want to put the right weight on the bar you know um, you and I know and I know from your training background having been a little more Bulgarian style that um, your strength varies on a day-to-day basis right our, our fatigue levels vary on a day-to-day basis our ability to perform is somewhat predictable somewhat related to what we were doing um, and hopefully, is predictable to the point where the plans we we, we, we have make sense. So that periodization um, does set us up for success more often than not. Um, but the because of those fluctuations, because of the fact that there are such extreme individual differences, uh, it makes sense to have some elements of what Mike Tushir, my colleague, uh, and uh, what I would say is happening in the coaching and programming world to have a bottom up approach rather than top down. So instead of kind of the the old school uh, view of having some like Eastern European coach who's holding a dowel, sitting in a chair, unassailable, you know, doesn't doesn't even make eye contact, but knows exactly the PR you're going to hit sometime in February uh, 2025 based on their plan, uh, that's starting to go away. And I think people who've been in the game long enough kind of know that we're all doing the best we can with the experience and knowledge we have and that everything to some degree, if done right, works. Um, It's the only way we can explain people in the Bulgarian system, Chinese system, Russian system, all Getting medals—it's the only way we can explain folks coming in powerlifting using the West Side and then the what seemingly polar opposite Shiko approach, both getting to the world champion stage. Um, so if a plan seems to be important, but the specifics of the plan are not highly important or are not the critical piece, that probably means that the individual differences are pretty big. So anyway, to get back to your, your question of is it best to use a percentage RPE raw RIR repetitions and reserve, um, or velocity or something else. I think so long as you have a system that accounts for the fact that your performance varies on day to day, any of them can work. Um, Let's, sorry, the, sorry, the, uh, pardon is. for
0: interrupting me, interrupting you. Can you give the listeners uh, kind of uh, an idea of what RPE and what RER is?
2: Absolutely. So, and I will try not to, to, to give you a huge spiel. So, RPE, rating okay. of perceived exertion, um, is simply that, that joke I made about counting to 10. Uh, that's a one to 10 scale. Um, and it was originally a six to 20 scale if we go all the way back to 1950. Um, and uh, we look at the Borg RPE scale. Anyone who's taken maybe a, even a bachelor's level exercise science class might have been exposed to this. And if they've done their master's or assisted on any project, they've probably used the scale after some type of exercise intervention. The reason why it was originally six to 20, it was meant to loosely correlate with heart rate. Right. So six with 60. 20 with 200, right? Um, and because it was primarily used in, in endurance or uh, graded exercise test types of interventions, um, and, it sh- and it's been validated over time to show that the Borg RPE scale, 6 to 20, and then eventually in the 80s, he developed a more intuitive 0 to 10 scale, um, does correlate really well with uh, physiological markers of intensity and experiences of, uh, of higher VO2 maxes or higher heart rate zones. That said, um, if you look at some of the research on using those Borg scales for, um, resistance training, it can reflect the overall perceived exertion, but it's not as useful for prescribing intensity. So for example, there's a number of studies where someone might've done, say a six rep max, the most reps they could do with a load for six reps. And they go, yep, that was an eight. And anyone in the lifting game goes how could that be an eight? You can't do a seventh rep. There's nothing more you could have done with that load to make it harder. However, it comes down to a phenomenon called anchoring in that we anchor, uh, certain experiences with certain verbiage. So if the RPE scale calls an eight, uh, very heavy, something like that, or very hard. Um, and you have used to be a Marine or used to play college sports or used to be an endurance athlete, A six rep max can only be so hard anchored relative to your other experiences. Right. Um, So uh, Mike, who I mentioned earlier, um, planted that seed Uh, champion powerlifting, the IPF forward thinking coach, pioneer of auto regulation and bottom up approaches in powerlifting. He says, you know what, what if we take that concept, but we anchor the different points in the scale with repetitions in reserve proximity to failure rather than these subjective descriptors. So the, The RIR-based RPE scale is repetitions and reserve-based rating of perceived exertion. So instead of the board descriptors on the right of that table, maximal effort, high effort, very hard, light, moderate, et cetera. Um, You can tell I studied it before I came on this podcast. I nailed those perfectly. Um, Now it's zero reps in reserve. Uh, one rep in reserve, two, three. So that a seven RPE means I think I could have done three more reps. Eight RPE means I think I could have done two more reps. A 10 is you put another kilo on that sucker and I would have got pinned. So that is the RPE scale. And it's using the lifters, uh, subjective ability to gauge how many more reps they could have done to modulate intensity. So instead of writing, I want you to do eight reps with 80% of one RM basing it off a pre-test you did at the beginning of the mesocycle of your one RM or an estimated one RM off of a three rep max. um, you would say, Hey, I want you to do eight reps at an eight RPE and the lifter goes, Hmm, what do I think I could do for 10 reps? I'll choose that and I'll do eight reps with it. And then they rate the RPE afterwards and it tells them, Oh, how, how close was that to my target? Do I need to adjust up or down based on the day and my perceived accuracy today?
1: Would you suggest a system like that for both beginner, novice and advanced lifters, or does it suit one type of you experience mean beginner,
0: level? intermediate, advanced, what did I say? Beginner novice.
1: Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, or does it suit one sort of experience level better than others in your opinion?
2: Yeah. So there's actually some good research on this. So the the first time someone did study of how close to failure can you gauge accurately was in 2012. It's a group out of Sydney uh, led by Hackett and colleagues and it was on bodybuilders. So bodybuilders have a lot of experience training to failure and this is where uh, it looked really good. They actually compared it uh, with some reliability statistics with Borg RPE and you could argue that they make the comparison that they were better at rating proximity to failure than they were at rating Borg RPE as a loading representation because so they were rating these sets to failure on squats bench at an eight to nine Borg RPE. But they were within a rep or two or sometimes less than one rep of accuracy with how close to failure you think. Do I think I am now a competitive bodybuilder is not a novice or an intermediate? I'd argue they're, they're almost by definition advanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think lifting experience has been shown in a number of different studies to be correlated or predictive of RPE accuracy. And that certainly seems to be the case anecdotally in my experience coaching and in using it myself. Um, now, when we think of an RPE rating on Instagram, our first thought is the person who looks like they're going to die barely stands up in what would, could roughly be approximated as a squat, um, but more so looks like a cat taking a shit, nearly dying and somehow getting up and racking a bar uh, while turning the color of a tomato. And they go RP eight, you know, and you're thinking, "Uh, that was a 10, you know, by far. Now, the funny thing is in the research, you see the exact opposite of that. That when someone's in a research study being asked by researchers and they know the purpose is we want to gauge your accuracy, they're actually, if anything, accurate or too conservative. And they are more conservative based on their inexperience with weights. So that tells me that there is some social expectancy going on. And there's also how much experience do you have actually pushing your limits to know where they are. So if your RP accuracy improves with time, that probably means for, the, for a novice, you shouldn't Tell, tell them, hey, I want you to do eight reps at eight. You tell them, hey, I want you to do eight reps at 80%. And by the way, write down how many more reps you think you could do so they can start to build uh, that skill. And then the, the coach can give them feedback. If you're online coaching, that could be a video. And they could say, you know, I think you had three. And that could even be, hey, uh, first set, do eight reps at 80%. Second set, do 80% AMRAP and make sure you have spotters. And then you can start to really get an idea of, if you're way off, you know, I did 15. Like, okay, great, awesome. You're a lot stronger than you think you are. And that might be why you're not making progress. But then as you progress into uh, intermediate, um, not just as a lifter, but also in your skill set, when those AMRAPs are closer to your your ratings, when your coach agrees with you, um, then you can go, yeah, I'm actually pretty accurate here. I can use this as a tool to, to individualize my load.
1: Mm -hmm. I so I personally don't use a lot of uh, RP in my own training, but I obviously have been exposed to it quite a bit just being in the industry. And we have a a lot. For some reason, it seems to be particularly popular uh, within USAPL and IPF lifters. So we have a lot of those at our gym and we get to see their training. And I almost never see anyone talk about anything below RP six. Usually if it's below RP 6 they it'll just say sub six. Uh, is there a scenario where would you would use the zero to five part of the scale? And if so, what, when, when is that an appropriate
2: thing to use? Great question. Um, and there's a reason why you could make the argument to not give a specific rating when you're that far away. Um, the data that exists, and it certainly, again, matches up with anecdote is that once you're like more than five reps from failure, um, the accuracy Gets precipitous; it falls off a cliff in terms of how accurate it is. And this makes sense. The analogy is basically um, when you're in a tunnel that's a mile long and you can't even see the proverbial and literal light at the end of the tunnel, your distance of how long is this tunnel is going to be inaccurate. But when you're 20 feet from the edge of the tunnel, you could probably be like, "Hey, I think I'm 20 feet from the edge of the tunnel." Mm-hmm. So the closer you get to failure, uh, the more knowledge you have that you're near failure because that ninth, you know, velocity slows down. Right. And we see a strong, but not perfect correlation with velocity and RPE. Um, so when you are within five, three, two, one reps from failure, uh, you're going to be progressively more accurate and and reasonably accurate within that, like five to 10 RPE range. Uh, and for the most part, you know, if you're training for powerlifting, which requires, you know, slow speed strength, max force output and, uh, on on lifts that are not, um, Explosive in nature that you can grind through uh, that necessarily means that you probably aren't going to be spending a whole lot of time below that RPE rate. So it has a lot of applicability. Um, however, for power related performances, um, that is where you can use RPE specifically because it's you can only tell the repetitions in reserve once the bar started to slow down. That's typically where you, when you're five reps away, the bar speed's not the same anymore. So I almost use the inverse of it. So if you look at the RPE scale we published, um, at the five and six RPE, it gives you like a range of reps and below that there is, uh, like basically easy and really easy is essentially the subjective descriptors. So if I want to give someone power-based training, uh, and I want to auto-regulate it, I want them to not be able to gauge how far from failure they are right? If they can tell, I've only got five reps left. That's not power training because it, it moves slow enough that you're at the end of the tunnel. So you can tell someone, Hey, if we're trying to do like, I don't know, clean pulse, I wouldn't use it for, for the main Olympic lifts. I think those are way too technically demanding. You know, you could miss seven RPE snatch just because you got a little forward, you know? Um, so the, the, the utility is normally in power-based, but non-highly technical technical movements like a hex bar, jump deadlift, a uh, jump squat, Smith bar, like chest, chest throw, something like that, where you're like ballistic weight training. I think you could use it and you want to keep the RPE uh, low enough. You know, I would, I don't know if I, if I would actually use the RPE scale, I'd probably tell them um, do reps until you perceive that the bar bar speed has started to slow down at all. And then cut it off there. So I want you to maintain a high velocity. So that, 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 that could be used in that way, but typically it is used for heavier weight training. Gotcha. If you
3: had the tools, would you use velocity in that? Absolutely. Area? Yeah. As a metric.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially velocity for, for velocity based, like for, for speed yeah.
3: related outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So that'd be the difference between RP and velocity based training.
2: Yeah. I guess definitely. that, that was, that might've been her original question. I don't know where yeah. we are now, but yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and, you know, I, I could dovetail on that or I can shut up and you can ask more no, questions. No, so please. feel free to no, interrupt no, me. Yeah. Go but, uh, me. Yeah. So so velocity-based training is um, the fact that in my PhD, we used velocity as a validation tool for RPE should tell you something, right? So if if we say, hey, there's a 0.88 correlation between velocity and uh, inverse correlation, because bar speed goes down as you get closer to failure, um, that should tell us, well, hold on, why don't I just use velocity? Well because the cheapest measurement of a loss you can get that's still accurate is going to cost you 400 bucks while counting from one to 10, uh, is whatever the cost of half of second grade is, you know, um, for me, I know I was supposed to learn it at first, but it took me a while. So remedial education still needed. Um, so yeah, the, the ability to gauge RPE is a lot more practical. Additionally, um, while velocity sounds great, if you've actually done research with velocity, you realize how unwieldy it can be. So you're going to have a different velocity profile on most lifts. Um, we did a mock meet with power lifters and track velocity, and we found that RPE at 1RM uh, did not differ. And the way and you're going, how could RPE differ? It's always 10, right? The way we did it, the way we tested this, uh, it's also a gauge of accuracy, uh, their ability to gauge an RPE at maximum was if, you know, they would basically go through attempt selection. So if they overshot, you know, if, let's say you lifted 200 you know, that's a nine, I'm going to go at five kilos. They went to 205 and they missed, you're stuck at 200. So your ability to gauge accuracy was, was a nine RPE, you know? Um, so that's a useful metric in and of itself. Uh, but we also got, um, the velocity at those maxes. So velocity on a pause competition style bench, uh, meet depth, squat, and a deadlift, they were all significantly different from one another squat bench and a deadlift. Uh, however, RPE was the same, you know, it was between a nine and a 10 for experienced powerlifters at their maximum. all of them. So that not only is there a different speed for each lift, but there's an individual velocity profile. So for example, I might be able to grind through my, like, let's say low bar style squat at a 0.18. At my lowest velocity, there are people out there who do a 0.12 and there's other people, maybe they're high bar squatters that kind of like a go, no-go lifter. And they're like a 0.24. If they go over that, they just don't get out of the hole. Um, So you would need to do an individual load velocity profile for you on squat, bench and deadlift. Uh, However, an RPE is again, first grade, you're good to go. Yeah. That goes
3: into the idea that you actually don't need the most accurate measurement or model because it doesn't generalize very well because you would have to overfit it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's often the question of, do we want maximal precision or do we want sufficient precision? And is the human error greater than the, 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 reliability of, of, of the, of the measurement, you know? Um, so yeah, like, uh, the difference between biological error and, and, and normal variation. So, like, you are you can get a really high-quality lab-grade scale that weighs to the gram, but your variation in body weight on a day-to-day basis is plus or minus 1% of your body weight. And if you're trying to use that as a proxy for fat loss or something like that. When you're in a multi-component model, it's like, ah, oh, that, that, that weight today doesn't matter. It'll give me an eating disorder. But <laughs> what really matters is maybe my two week average of at least three weigh weigh-ins per week. And that is much more useful for making changes. Same kind of thing with RPE um, or velocity. What, what, what precision do we need? What precision is helpful? What precision might actually have us chasing posts? Like doesn't matter that your max today was 0.2, but two days from now, it's 0.21 meters per second. And yesterday is 0.19. Probably not. It just matters that you complete it and it's in the right band. I mean, when you look at velocity-based training, they give a range. Um, and when I give RPEs, I'll normally tell someone, hey, um, I want you to hit a seven RPE. That set counts if you hit a six or an eight though. you know. Let, let's say, I want you to do a top single at a seven RPE. If you hit a six and a half, I don't go, yep, got to do another single. That's like twice the volume I prescribe, right? I got it's close enough. You're good. You know, you, you overshoot it. Okay. You That, that teaches you something, it's self-correcting, but we're, we're, we're also done. You did your single and then we'll do back off work or whatever. So yeah, that's almost the, um, what you're talking to is the, the, how the tool is used rather than how accurate is the tool used and how accurate does it need to be? So it's a really good point.
0: I've, uh, I've never used velocity-based training and I actually just started thinking about it after we had Chris Duffin in our podcast. And I guess what would draw me or what interests me about it is actually the objectivity of it, uh, and the ability to auto-regulate on the upper side. So for example, you come in and say you're, you have a single at RP eight and you're not feeling it, you know, sometimes how you feel doesn't really matter. Right. So I guess like if there's for a you,
1: a lot of the time, how you feel doesn't <laughs> matter for me, <laughs> for you. Yeah.
0: yeah. Like sometimes I come into the gym and I feel like crap and I end up, you know, hitting a PR or whatever. But, um, what I'm saying is, you know, I'm interested in trying it as kind of a supplement a supplementary data to so that in those days, when I think I don't feel great and I think it's moving slow and I think I'm moving like shit, then maybe I can look at the speed of the bar and be like, all right, Steph, like, you know, this is moving at a really good speed. It's moving as if you had you know, half of the weight on the bar or whatever. And maybe that'll give me kind of like that extra. oomph to, to hit a, a, a PR or, or, or put more weight on the bar on that day. I don't know.
3: Also, what do you think about the idea that since you have the feedback of bar speed as a number that you might actually be able to improve bar speed in a meaningful way?
0: It's a great question.
3: Then, you know, then if you just were told to move as fast as possible, because I know there's some, there's been some experiments done. I'm just not sure if the data supports that
2: hypothesis. See, uh, you know, a good podcast is when I- I'm asked the questions that are awesome and I get to answer them instead of ask something and I have to manufacture something because the, the hosts suck. So you guys are the hosts don't suck award today for these awesome questions. So first Steffi, your question and Ian, I like yours too. So the RPE scale using RAR, the anchoring of repetition reserve is an objective scale rated subjectively. And that can have weaknesses. So I have definitely had moments where I step into the gym, feel like crap, and I go, all right, I'll work up to a seven. In my warm-ups, I realize fuck a seven is, is damn near a PB. That actually happened yesterday. I was not feeling good. I was distracted when I came into the gym. I had to do all these new PT exercises and I felt fatigued, like I tired my core out because so I'm I'm doing some stuff for uh, trying to improve my overhead position. Uh, and then I'm like, I forgot my belt and my knee sleeves. And then I, okay, I got to pull a beltless single on conventional. Okay, it's fine. It's week one, whatever. This is supposed to be submaximal. And I pulled 90% of my conventional one RM, uh, belted max for like a seven RPE. And I was like, that actually might be a beltless PR at a seven RPE. That's fantastic. So it happens, you know, you come in feeling like shit, but if you can be honest with this subjectively rated objective scale, then you should still be able to get the same benefits of say velocity. Mm -hmm. however, that's a big if, because you're the one who rates the RPE. Uh, you're the one who may not even put that weight on the bar because you're using RPE on your warmups, which might feel shitty. However, if you were to look or actually get a velocity metric that might give you the data or the perception, I should say, to, to push a little higher and to move the bar, um, to be able to see that the bar is moving fast. So you keep, keep moving the weight up. So I think, Um, There are things you can do to make an RPE a little more objective. You can video your lifts and then not rate the RPE until you see the video. Um, You can do what I do, which is called using the the barbometer, which is my wife's name is Barb. So I ask her, hey, honey, did you see that lift? And most of the time she goes... I'm trying to train over here, not watch you lift. And I go, yeah, but did you see it? She says, yeah, I saw it. And I go, what do you, what do you think, the, think of that RPE? And she'll tell me some number. And then I, I just <laughs> tend to know that she is a little more accurate at ga- gauging my RPE than I am. Um, she but she part? almost always says my first thought and then I modify it and I create some, some denial that either makes me stronger or weaker on the day, depending on whether I want to push or whether I feel like crap and I'm scared of hurting my back or whatever. So velocity gets around all that because 0.23 is 0.23 you know? So I do think that is a benefit now to, to transition Ian, to your question. I don't know if you, if he's there for you guys, but he's there for me. That's why I'm pointing. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. there was a cool study that came out where they compared RPE to velocity. Um, it had a really long title in my brain. It's the velocity wars. I uh, sorry, the Autoregulation Wars study, um, <laughs> which, uh, Probably is not the name of the actual study. In fact, I guarantee it's not. And the gains were actually substantially, I should say, significantly higher in the group using velocity. Now, one of the things that velocity does that could be seen as a feature or a bug, depending on on how you see it, is it's actually really difficult to get a fair comparison, quote unquote, between RPE and velocity. While they're both doing the same thing, one gives you biofeedback that can be inherently motivating and the other just auto-regulates your load. Um, Because... You don't really like, oh, seven. I'm going to see if I can get a better seven than his seven. Like, that doesn't work like that. So, this is a study on team sport athletes, probably training together, probably in the lab together, probably knowing what specific velocity targets are. And the velocity tells you how well you did. So, it gamifies it inherently. It can make you strive to move that bar faster. And indeed, there is data. Uh, there was a study that came out way back in the day where maximal intent to to, to accelerate the bar on a bench press study resulted in almost twice the bench press strength gains compared to just lifting. So there's that study, which would which in indicate that. Um, and then this study where RPE was beat out by velocity, don't get me wrong. They both created strength gains. So it's not like we're, we're I'm not trying to sell like a magic ebook or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, both work, both are great, but there, there may be that gamification process, especially among, Situations, social environments that where that would prove to enhance performance. Um, So, AUT Millennium is the campus where we do our sports sciencey stuff, and it is technically not a campus. It's actually our national training facility for high performance sport in New Zealand. And when I first got here. And I got the tour of the high-performance sport uh, strength conditioning facility. At the time, the lead strength conditioner was really into some of the some of the stuff, their velocity-based training. And what they had was um, they had they would train for force or velocity, so kind of on the force-velocity spectrum, depending on the individual needs of the athletes. And they would periodize based on more force-dominant or velocity-dominant resistance training. So they'd have them stand on two independent force plates, left and right foot. So it's telling them their Newton force, ground reaction force. And then they would also have an LPT, a linear position transducer, a velocity sensor strapped to the bar. And then it would pop up with color coding green, yellow, red, individualized to the person, how fast is that bar moving or how much force are you putting out depending on which phase they were in. So it would give them immediate biofeedback. And these are, you know, these are, these are iceberg profile, high level Olympic caliber athletes or the equivalent in in, uh, non-Olympic sports. And it was a fantastic motivating tool. I think almost regardless of how accurate it was or how it fit into the plan to get them hyped and and ready to make that next rep better. So hundred percent, I think that's part of it.
4: So I, I think all these tools and measures are really great, but putting on, you know, your coaching hat, the, these things don't really work out the way we want them to. Uh, one of the things I hear from my clients most, uh, you know, is playing this ego or comparison game of what they did last week, uh, what they think they should be doing, and, and not really putting things into perspective or into context. Uh, you know, earlier you mentioned systems um, and you know managing fatigue, and that's something that you know real people have a, a hard time you know, thinking about like what actually happened the day before, what was the session on Monday like? And just kind of thinking about doing more, especially, uh, you know, from the perspective of a power lifter that is peaking for me, you know, last week called for for an eight and then this week called for an eight and a half, but now my eight and a half is what my eight was or is now uh, or a nine, for example, how do you kind of have those conversations with the, with your clients or people who are starting to, You know, they might know RP, I mean, I know RP and sometimes I use it, I use a mix of both percentages and RP, uh, but even still, I have a hard time staying within it when things are feeling good or, you know, when things are are really terrible. Uh, How do you kind of have those conversations with your lifters?
2: Well, well. First, the conversation we're going to have is how you just ruined the ebook sale that we were all going to collaborate on on how auto regulation is magic and will get you to win any championship because you brought this whole real people situation in uh, instead of us relying on hyperbole. So, thanks a lot for that. Now we're going to have to actually work a job instead of just using our Instagrams to sell ebooks. So, excellent question. And this is something you run into all the time: is that Um, the reaction to this system still is a human reaction. Uh, And that's exactly what happens. You're going through, let's say, a peaking cycle. Um, Let's say you've just gone through a volume block. You've accumulated sets over time or volume load or whatever your system is. Uh, And then now you're transitioning to intensity. You're still carrying lingering fatigue. And now you're doing these heavy singles in a fatigued state. Um, And the goal is once you actually taper to perform well on game day. Um, But you may feel like either death to perform at the expected amount Uh, Or if it's auto-regulated, you might find your performance is even more variable right now because of that fatigue. That's still going to get in your head. You know, exactly the scenario you gave that eight and a half is now what it was an eight. Like that's, that's not good, right? I'm getting weaker for my meat that gets in your head. I think that's something regardless of the approach you use, whether you grind out a single that's supposed to be your opener a week out and you know, that's 91% or whatever your, your third attempt is, is targeted to be that gets in your head, just like hitting a single at a seven or a seven and a half. Well, uh, in the same way. So I think the, the tool of auto-regulation doesn't change the reality that these fluctuations in performance still get in our head as lifters. Um, so I think, what auto-regulation does do, if we were to say, okay, well, what's better, A or B, you know, a top-down approach or bottom-up, is that embedded into the philosophy of the bottom-up auto-regulated approach is that's expected. We know that's supposed to happen. It's not, oh, I was supposed to hit a triple at 90%, and I hit it, but I nearly died. Something's wrong. Now it's saying, hey, hit a triple at a nine. And we understand by the fact that we're using a nine instead of 90%, that I can't perfectly predict your performance while over here, I used to write these eight week blocks and I used to put, you know, this, this linear progression, you know, we'd end around 30, th- three by three at 90% uh, of their pretest max. And we'd be starting, you know, four weeks before that and doing triples of like 85% or fives at 77 and it comes down and I wouldn't know what to do. I felt like my, I was handcuffed until they did their one RM test post tape And then I'd have to wait another eight week block to tell them what to do, right? Like, well, Hey, uh, bench went up 5% squat went up 3% deadlift didn't change. I'd ask them, how recovered do you feel? Okay, now I'm going to give you another eight weeks, eight weeks. We're going to do more volume on deadlifts. And we're going to start that taper a little earlier. And then eight weeks from now, I can actually make a decision. That's a pretty shitty turnaround time. You know that that's like the comparison well, what i think with auto regulation and using an rpe scale and you get that data that you positioned as emotionally stressful it is but it's their rpe or not i can turn on a dime if you will versus trying to turn a tanker around in the ocean so the equivalent way that I, I deal with things now, instead of having this eight week progression where we test at the end and I have either, you know, am wraps in a volume block or one RM testing in, in an intensity block after a taper is now I might have during that volume block singles at a seven once a week. So I can kind of keep my finger on the pulse of where I think your strength is because I can back calculate a one RM from that. That's your four rep max, right? So that should be roughly equivalent to like eighty-eight to ninety percent of your one RM or something like that mm-hmm. today. Um, and then during the intensity block, maybe we have two to three singles a week, and they're at eight RPE. And now you're, you know, we're building specificity. We're giving you the specific tools to be ready for your meet. And now you're doing an eight uh, an RPE, which means that's your your three rep max right? So now it's even more predictive of what your probable one RM strength is. And that might become, you know, singles at a nine and eventually a mock meet or something like that. So now on week three, day five, I know what your estimated one RM is. And I can see that that in week two at one, we've actually seen the steady regression of your, of your one RM. I'm giving you too much or something's not right. You're not sleeping enough. Your nutrition's off instead of me going, Hey, La 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 What happens at eight weeks from now? I, I can't. I can't know what what anything means until you follow the program perfectly and and either hit a PR or don't at the end of eight weeks, and then I can make a change. So I, I used to. It's changed my philosophy as a coach. Like I don't do the fire and forget, um, and then get under the hood and see what's wrong. Now I can start to see trends as they occur and go. Hold on, like man, your your deadlift is just tanking. Are you in pain? Are you not sleeping? Are you, you know, what's going on, you know? Um, and it gives me, uh, I'd say an early warning system, if you will, uh, to, to allow me to make a coaching decision. So I think, I don't know if I directly answered your question, but I changed it so I could sound smart and make RPE still good. So hopefully that helps.
4: Yeah, no, uh, you wanted to alluded to it more towards the end because I work with clients mostly in the nutrition realm, um, but hearing Uh, For my clients working with other training programs or coaches, that's something they don't really touch on that under the hood, what's actually going on? Uh, Because, you know, obviously training fatigue will add up, but a lot of people have a hard time looking under the hood and knowing what the, you know, the context of their life is in this moment. Are they actually sleeping enough? Did they get into a fight with their spouse? Uh, You know, are they in an exam period and how that might actually affect their, their training and not letting their coach know so that they can adjust things accordingly? Uh, you know, they, they kind of wait till eight week mark, or I'm just going to keep riding until they either get injured, uh, miss a rep and, you know, get more frustrated and ruin the whole eight week block. Um, so I, I guess it's just, how would you give advice to other coaches out there that are doing training, uh, to, you know, let clients have that early warning system for themselves so that they can be more objective with how they approach the
2: RP when they walk into the gym? Now this one will probably not be a short response, so just everybody strap in for for a bit of a monologue. I'm
4: so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I like it, and this is—I think this is so important.
2: <laughs> so this is this is basically a meta discussion of the philosophy of coaching, training, and um, whether you're taking a bottom-up or top-down approach. So what you're pointing at, which I think is the reality, if any coach is paying attention and is honest and isn't just trying to protect their own ego is that there's a whole lot of shit that does not get included in our spreadsheets that impacts yeah. things. You know, we started 1950 with this whole, you know, your feelings just make you weak. Uh, that's, those are, those are womanly things you're doing. there, having feelings, you know, and and this idea that, um, essentially the model of stress is just, I put in stress and we get a response. It was general adaptation syndrome, no modifications, changes, or whatever, you know, here's program, here's alarm reaction resistance. And then if program is too much, we go into the alarm, we go into, to the the overtraining state, right? Uh, Eventually that became a little more nuanced and we said, well, hold on Training doesn't just produce an adaptation or too much. It does both simultaneously. It's the fitness and fatigue model, that two factor model. And it is some relationship between those two that predicts performance getting closer now, but we're not there yet. Now we have the biopsychosocial model and we understand that, yeah, the fitness fatigue model is true, that two factor model, but guess what? It goes along with the background noise of, did you get stuck in traffic? Are you going through a divorce? how often does your cat throw up on Saturdays, you know, hot. Bucky lot. will just incessantly cleans. And I swear to God, when he has a liquidy throw up, he thinks he needs to run away from it and then it gets all over the house. So then I go through our entire roll of toilet paper, trying to clean this up. And then we run out of toilet paper early. And my wife says, why didn't you use the paper towels? And I went, I don't know. But she's like, well, now I'm stuck on the toilet. You need to go get some toilet paper. And here I am trying to deadlift. So you see what I'm saying is that there's a lot more that goes into it um, than, than simply what we, what we put in as coaches. So that means that this top-down approach is inherently flawed, that, that kind of old Eastern European you know, stick-holding coach who knows what you did February 2025 to bring it full circle to what I said before. So not only is auto-regulation an important aspect of training, programming, periodization, but your philosophy as a coach now has to get up to date as well which means you need to have essentially an understanding of human behavior. You need to understand self-determination theory. Now, all of a sudden, you're no longer the captain of the ship. You realize that you're the seasoned navigator and your client is the captain. It's their goal. So you have to take a client-centered approach. You need to figure out, okay, where do you want to go? I've been there before. I can help you go there. And by the way, the expert on your body is not me because I don't live in your body. It's you. I know a lot about bodies. And I've helped many bodies do this, um, but your individual challenges, your unique client experience is yours. And true evidence-based practice, although I've been talking a lot of science, is uh, a three-factor approach. It is scientific evidence, one of three. It is individual client preferences, needs, and individuality, and then my experience. And then the trifecta is evidence-based practice. So I think that top-down approach typically comes from just one of these two. My experiences say, say to do this, I'm the guru, this is worked for my other athletes, and if it doesn't work for you, something's wrong with you or you're not adhering. Or Smith et al. 1989 said this. And that's not what's happening here. So you're lying or you're not tracking your calories, right. Or something like that. Um, So this huge piece I think has been missing from both the quote unquote, like bro science in the trenches, top down approach, or the evidence-based, I need a citation to do anything approach and both lack the, the, that, that bottom up coaching philosophy of, Hey, the things you need are, I can only get from you. So essentially my job is to be a good communicator and facilitate your own self-awareness and generate as a mentor, your autonomy. So the tools of auto-regulation have this underlying philosophy that, that need to be matched with that coaching style. Um, so that means that it's not just about RPE. That's basically just kind of us. We've opened Pandora's box this much. If we really want to think about load management, fatigue management, nutrition, all those things, Whew, there's tools in each one of those little buckets of how we can uh, get more information from the individual and take a bottom-up approach, an emerging strategy from what is occurring on a regular basis. Another example, like, like here's, I'll just give a little framework of what could work for just training, and then we'll, we'll add in other stuff later. Let's say I give you uh, RPE-based loading selection. And I have a fixed amount of volume that I'm going to have you do, number of sets. But at the end of the mesocycle, I give you a questionnaire of five questions. I ask you, are your stress levels higher than normal? Uh, is your sleep quality worse or, or, or normal? Worse worse than normal, excuse me. Are your aches and pains worse than normal? Is your motivation to train worse than normal? And then looking at your your data, have you actually regressed in terms of these auto-regulated loads? Um, and if the answer is yes to two or more. Okay. The training stress balance is off, right? Additionally, I've gotten a session RPE. This is using the Borg RPE scale, but you apply it 15 minutes and you're done training to the whole session. And then I get, uh, I can multiply that by number of sets or session duration, or just use it raw, whatever I think is most accurate. And then I can look at your average session RPE over the course of the mesocycle. And that gives me a an arbitrary value of of training load, this kind of represents volume. And if I know that it was at 84, we'll just make some number up on average. And you regressed and you said yes to two or more of those answers, and you didn't really make objective progress and you subjectively feel beat up. Okay, I need to change something. And that tells me that that level of training load was too much to produce too much stress and not progress. So next training block, I'm going to try to dial that back to somewhere in the 70s going to make some changes. And then hopefully we see not only progress, but at the end, you're not saying yes to two or more questions. And those, you know, I might've put a deload in there and then perhaps every two or three blocks, we're saying yes to two or more questions. And that's fine because we're pushing overload, right? So now all of a sudden, the concept of auto-regulation and the underlying philosophy of taking a client-led bottom-up approach is now transposed into load management, mesocycle to mesocycle and on an individual day. And now we've got a system, but it's not just do I do you use 80% or an eight RPE at eight, you know, so, and that can be applied to nutrition, sleep, anything, you know, so long as you can create a systematic approach um, that can pay respect to your plan, but also pay respect to the biopsychosocial model. I think you're doing something great. And it's just a question of how do you get that data? And it doesn't need to be these objective systems. So for example, I get most of my data from my clients. And we do also at 3 d Muscle Journey, which you can find at 3DMuscleJourney.com. We have... I don't know what you're talking about. Um, What our clients do is they will give us a video report. So we work with a lot of contest prep bodybuilders. And they're a highly motivated population experience of conscious prep is basically trying to ignore the fact that you're dying. Um, (laughs) so while it's useful that you are ignoring the fact that you're dying, because in the end you'd need to not die and get on stage and flex and look happy while everything inside of you is dying, but you look amazing. Um, but we need to know the degree to which you are actually dying. So if I can get a video report from you where it just looks just like this, but instead of me looking bright, chipper, attractive, crisp, as we talked about with my, my, my new video and my, my audio, if I kind of looked like something approximating this and I'm like, coach, I'm good. Like this is great. And I crushed, I crushed the training. You know, I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting I'm a solid four hours of sleep. Like I'm expecting to get at the stage of contest, bro. We can see the disconnect between what they are stating and then what they look like. We can get their tone, all those aspects of human communication, which are not, uh, not contextualizing text, which is why we moved from just having typed messages to ideally getting video messages or voice recordings of someone's who doesn't have the bandwidth in their country location or, or just, it's not feasible. Um, so we like to really kind of leverage all of our tools to get the best take on where our person is in a more holistic sense. So we can make these decisions and we do things like, all right, we do need to push your calories lower, uh, or we need to push energy expenditure higher. What's the path of least resistance right now? And often the, the thing is about this coaching stance is that the client needs to buy into it as well. I can go, I'm using a client led approach, but if I don't communicate that to you very well, you might still be thinking you're, your magic man, you're Mr. Guru on the pedestal. So I, I run into it all the time where I'll be like, Hey, like in your life with what you got going on now, your individual situation, do you think it'd be easier to cut from fat carbs or do more cardio? And they go, whatever you think is best coach. I know you know everything. And I'm like, oh, fuck. A, that's a lot of pressure. B, it's false. And C, the best answer is actually what I fucking asked you the first time like, what would put less stress on the whole system? So it's important to really be able to communicate with uh, your clients what you're doing. So when we first set up an athlete at 3DMJ, again, at 3dmustle.com um, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's going to see the no. I know, I, I'm just having fun. You, you can edit that out. Um, so
0: <laughs> You're a competitor, I'm going to edit it out the entire podcast.
2: <laughs> I love it. It's just no, put, it's a, a, put a hybrid logo yeah. over it every time <laughs> I think it should be in your voice too, so it's like, <laughs> but you can <laughs> find it.
0: Hybrid performance. performance. It. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah.
2: So... Yeah. Anyway, anyway. so what we do is we try to, we send them like an initial startup kind of email and we Skype with them first and we send them a documentation about like how we like to teach our clients to communicate what the reporting system is going to be and our stance. So we directly say to them like, hey, all the information we need, you got it. Your goals, they're yours. I'm not going to tell you what you should be doing or, or, or what you want to get to. And that can take sometimes months for them to really get it. You know, because anyone who's been a PT, you know, will run into people who are essentially, we talk about the stages of change and behavior change, you know, there's like inaction, like, why would I ever want to lose weight? I love my beard, you know, kind of thing. And then it's like, <laughs> hmm. My blood pressure is really high. The doctor told me I should probably lose some weight. Let me, let me read about that. Let me find out any supplements that I can use. And you get to the the planning stage when you're not actually ready to act. And that's when, unfortunately, a lot of people walk into a PT's office and they're essentially saying, you know what, I'm not ready to act, but I will give you a hundred dollars to do it for me. You know, it's kind of like, it's the dentist approach. Like, I don't want to brush my teeth, but what if I just go to the dentist three times a week? You know, (laughs) it sounds awful. But that's what so many people do with personal trainers. They hate training. They haven't adopted a lifestyle of enjoying physical activity, lifting or anything like that. There's no intrinsic motivation, but they don't want to die or they want to play with their grandkids. So they don't want to be on blood pressure medication or something like that. And it's an obligation thing they hate, they don't want to do, they didn't play sports. And it's the job of the trainer, if they actually know what they're doing, to try to Tap into that person, find out what they are good at, what their personality is, and introduce them to the wide world of physical activity, physical culture, eating differently, and maybe get them excited and actually enjoying it, um, rather than saying, yeah, I'll take your money, and then we'll make great progress for 12 weeks, and then when you leave, you'll gain all that weight back, or stop ex- exercising, or not make all those changes, and then um, you'll either need me all the time, or you'll be back in my office 12 weeks from now, or you'll go buy that supplement that you thought would do the trick. Which you will So I think that whole philosophy is the answer to your question. And I'm going to shut up now for a while.
0: No, that, that was so beautifully articulated.
1: Yeah. And we've, we've definitely communicated in some way that that like that we've experienced that same thing with a lot of our, our clients, but uh, you just articulated it really well. And I also really like the the broad application of RPE to an overall training session and then the average of that to an overall training cycle because it's so contrary to the way most people think about training in general. Like they'll come out of a training block and they'll say, wow, that training block crushed me. I feel like crap, I didn't get stronger. And then they say, what should I do next? Work harder, do more volume and- Or change change your
0: coach, find something else. Like they think it- And find
1: some magic way to recover better. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's, actually, if I
2: may, real quickly, that whole change your coach thing that you said, Steffi, is it comes from, it's a consequence. So some people are thinking, well, I need to be the guru. That's how it's been shown to make money, quote unquote, be successful in our industry, not actually help people. Um, I need to be the person who is never wrong, has all the answers. And I have the magic things for you to buy or the magic programming or coaching or whatever. And then, and how do I market myself? 12 week transformations. You come to me, you look like this. And then I wave my magic wand and you look like this. Mm-hmm. And then the coaches start to realize that maybe that's either something they're ethically uncomfortable or they're not just getting the results they want. Uh, or they're getting attacked by online by someone who maybe has a conscience or and I'm not saying they're bad for <laughs> purpose. This is the model, right? This is the model of what you're supposed to do as an online coach. Right. Uh-huh. And I think everyone does it at some point, or you at least feel like you're obligated to maybe if, even if you actually are a good coach but there's a huge mismatch in what you're communicating. Like if let's say you are doing all the things I talked about, you were actually a good coach behind closed doors, but what you're showing is, Hey, come to my website, hire my program, buy my stuff, hire us. And in 12 weeks, I'm going to, you're, you're broken and I'm going to fix you. Right. And then when the client comes to you and doesn't get the results, they go to another coach because they see coaches like appliances. You just made yourself a toaster come to me. I will make you the best toast, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't get a good toast. I'm going to go get a different toaster. Why would I get this? Take this back. Give me a refund. It's but a commodity. Reality, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You're trying to sell a service as a commodity oh. and you're also trying to sell a top-down service as a commodity. But if I tell you, guess what? I'm actually like a fine wine. When you first hire me, <laughs> your program is going to be relatively generalized crappy for you. It's my best shot based on an hour long conversation, but three years from now, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to have a working relationship. That's amazing. So for example, my, uh, my client, Bryce Lewis, who is the current best one Oh five KG drug tested lifter in the world. I've been working with him since 2010. And if I was to go back in 2010 and give him that program, we would both have a good laugh because it's, it was garbage. I was at the beginning of my coaching career. It was his he was doing his first powerlifting meet. Um, and I had not been working with him, but now um, like we Skyped last night and I talked about, Hey, what worked in this block? What didn't, what do you, what do you think where we need to go? Like we're in a holding pattern here because COVID's extending when, when worlds might be. Now we're going to have to peak for worlds and nationals within a month of each other. How are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. It's this collaborative process. I know how long he takes to peak on different lifts. I know what movements patterns uh, he seems to get could transfer to his main lifts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, What we actually need to communicate to people is not what the fitness industry tells us to put on our social media. And then when we try to do a good job by doing coaching, right, but also doing quote unquote marketing, right. Then we get these clients who come to us with really poor expectations. They expect us to fix them. And we can't because they can only fix themselves and they don't want to hear that message. They want a refund and they go get another toaster. And that's our fault which I think is is, is the problem. we love to go like, oh, that client was was garbage. Well, that client has been fed garbage by our industry for the past five years. So Mm -hmm. what do you expect? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's
1: it's tough. It's a little bit of like a a chicken and and the egg sort of uh, scenario, right? Because like you said, it's everything that the industry has done to prove your efficacy as a coach for a long period of time. So now that's what people want. You know, people want that quick. I want to come to just, I want to find the person who says in 12 weeks, they can give me a 50 pound PR on my squat. So,
3: it's know. also broader than that as a recovering chiropractor or <laughs> or <I laughs> <make> mistakes, um, <laughs> that's that, you know, it's embedded in, in medicine, right. Um, and culturally in, in just the way we, we market to people, the way we advertise, the way we compete in a marketplace is to sell a better result faster easier,
2: cheaper, and humans aren't great at making long-term yeah. associations. <laughs> Eric, right.
0: I have a question for you. How do you, how do you navigate through? Cause I mean, you've been involved in the fitness industry for a long, long time, probably longer than us. Uh, how do you navigate through kind of just all of the, the bullshit that goes on in the fitness space? And how did you initially started monetizing, all of this knowledge and your personal training, and eventually build a profitable business. Because, look, if there's one thing that I've realized that has drawn me to certain people, such as yourself and Lane and Omar, and I mean, who has a pack and Jordan Shallow, is that they haven't, is that all of us are people with integrity. You wouldn't sell something that doesn't work. You're not going to sugarcoat things. You're not going to tell anyone, hey, here's a 30 days to visible abs program. You know, you're you're going to have integrity. You're going to follow the best recommendations and you're going to give it to people straight. So talk a little bit about how you were able to build a profitable business being truthful. And, and cause I, it's, it's hard. Look at my experience, at least, um, as a, as a physical therapist, like when I was trying to insert myself in the industry was that I found it so hard to gain any sort of traction or attention through, uh, being truthful with people like I remember starting I started posting things like there's no three easy steps to fix your knee pain or you know stuff like that and I honestly f- thought that it would have been so much easier for me to make those kinds of posts so be or be like uh, get rid of your shoulder pain with this band exercise which I realized that was what, what a lot of physical therapists with a big following were doing so yeah. f- from a personal training standpoint and and uh, from a nutrition coach standpoint, how did you, how did you navigate through that?
2: Yeah, there's, there's how I did it. Uh, and then there's me rationalizing backwards from a position of reasonable success. The fact that I'm here means I didn't fail to some degree. Uh, and then, you know, does that, does that really mean I was successful or am I just kind of back explaining all the different uh, pivots I made? Um, the one thing I am quite confident in saying was, a key element of me, at least, having whatever measure of success I have now, is that I started with a mission statement um, from the very beginning. I was actually very fortunate. I was in my sports management undergrad degree uh, with a concentration in fitness and wellness. Shout out California University of Pennsylvania. Um, while I was a personal trainer, and one of my assignments in my during my bachelors was actually to create a business plan for something in the fitness or health space. So I wrote the business plan for 3D Muscle Journey. Um, before 3D Muscle Journey started. And I pitched it over to to Brad, Jeff, and Alberto. And I was like, I think we can do this. Um, (laughs) So part of that was creating a mission statement, which meant that I had to actually write down specifically based on what my values are, what our shared values are. They had to approve it. They looked at it. And we spent multiple drafts trying to figure out what are we trying to actually accomplish? And the thing that I found is that That isn't incredibly important when you start, but it's really important once you start to get your first successes. Uh, It is important when you start because you need to know what you're doing. But a lot of people with a superficial pseudo mission statement can start. Like, I want to be a trainer and make money. Okay, that's not really a mission statement, but (laughs) you you can get going, right? Um, But once you start getting opportunities, figuring out what's an actual opportunity or what is a diversion uh, is really important. So, you know, if, if, if you're Mike Chang and you have a strong mission statement, maybe you don't say yes to six pack shortcuts because now you're known as the guy who sold six pack shortcuts. And what are you going to do in the industry? You better go sell real estate or something. Um, maybe he's doing great. I don't know. Um, so if your goal is just to make money for a temporary period and not have a career and need to find out some somewhere else to go, that's fine. But what I've seen now over the time course, of, I think Instagram's a really useful one. People's mission statement is, I want to get a whole lot of followers because then I can do things with those followers. Rather than I want to do something that generates followers because I'm providing something of value. And then I'm going to have a high level of engagement and I'm going to be able to interact with and engage with that, that group. So for example, I have done a number of things that, that have resulted in, in, in me selling things and having affiliates. Right. Um, and sometimes I'm surprised that the follower metrics on someone's social media do not necessarily predict how good they do on those affiliate sales Absolutely. because, and I'm not saying I'm not calling anyone out. If someone's like my affiliate right now, and they're listening, they're like what the, fu-? you know, like that's not what I'm saying. There's specific examples I can think of where I was really surprised. And then when I looked into it, I went, well, you know, this person, has had a, a clothing sponsor, a supplement sponsor. Um, this was what they were selling last week. Their programs changed. And it's so obvious that they are simply leveraging their followers to make money rather than actually giving anything of value. So they're kind of like a fun commercial to watch for people. But am I going to buy something from you? Of course not. I'm not an idiot, you know, um, but I, I will follow you. You're attractive. You know, you're in your twenties and you have good <laughs> genetics probably on a small amount of anabolics, but that's really all you got going for you. And when you turn 32 and someone else who's 25, like, do I, I don't know if I really want to watch you looking over your shoulder at me or or holding up some random new supplement with your shirt off guy, you know? So that, that, that model is, is, is inherently short-sighted. So I think to get back to your question, what was really useful is that when I had that mission statement, when these false opportunities came along, when someone asked me, hey, do you want to partner on X supplement, X book? Do you want to come speak here? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Uh, Do you want to write this article for me? Do you want to write for this magazine? I immediately just think of our mission statement. Does this align with what I'm trying to accomplish with 3D Muscle Journey? And man, seven out of 10 times, it doesn't. Even if it seems like a great opportunity. I got pitched uh, training someone who was going to be in a Marvel movie not too long ago. And I don't know the details. They don't tell you shit until you actually say yes. And it might've been absolutely nothing. Um, But I turned it down because I don't like, even like if we extend that out to the best case scenario, I don't want to be sitting with, you know, Hugh Jackman 2.0 next to Colbert talking about the training thing and then doing something on a BOSU ball in front of a live audience. Like, (laughs) I'm trying not to throw up on, on camera right now. That I have no interest <laughs> in that. You know? um, for me, the whole goal of gaining a following is so that I have a larger platform to do positive things, to provide value, to educate people, to help people, to grow my community, to, to facilitate my mission statement. So it's what is before what? Am I trying to get a following to figure out what I can do? Or do I have a mission statement and I realize that if I get on... Uh, if, if I could put a lot of people on and, and have access to them, then I can, I can succeed in my mission. And I don't want to sound like I think I'm successful. Or I figured this out. Right. Because I didn't even really get some of this stuff. I didn't get on Instagram until 2016. And if you come to me like back then they're like, okay, so let me get this straight. You're trying to educate people in the bodybuilding space and the, the place where all the bodybuilders are the social media platform. It's a visual medium. You're not there. And I'm like, yeah, I'm dumb. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like I was on Facebook at the point when it was mostly, you know, people in their forties. So I'm saying that as someone who's 37. So I don't know if that really, I can do that anymore. But the point is, is that I've done a lot of things wrong. I've had slow growth. Um, I've made errors. I've, I've learned how to do marketing 10 years after I've been, 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 in the field, um, stuff that, I basically spent a whole lot of time learning really nerdy shit and talking about it and hoping someone noticed. And that is what actually eventually happened. This guy named Matt Ogus hired us, found out he was one of the first big YouTubers. And he said, Hey, Eric, do you want to do a Q and a, and I was like, sure. And then, oh, by the way, when I do my, my client check-ins, those video check-ins and I do my poses, do you mind if I also put it on my YouTube channel mm-hmm. and out of my mouth comes, yeah, sure. That's totally fine. In my brain, I go, what's a YouTube channel, you know? Oh, and then i look at my client check-in and I look down and instead of it being an unlisted video with two views, him, when he uploaded it and me, it's a listed video and it has 10,000 views. And I'm like, what is going on here? And then I, our next meeting, I go, maybe we should make a YouTube channel, you know? So a lot of this stuff is me stumbling around in the dark and happening to run into these opportunities. And when I was first basically put on by Matt Ogus was the real start of my visibility. Because like you, Steffi, I was writing blog articles. I was doing all the stuff, training people, teaching at a personal training university, doing my master's. Um, but I was essentially unknown online in the proto social media time of 2011. Until I got on on YouTube. And then it opened a lot of doors. And I was so thankful that I a had had some level of expertise not to blow it when I got there. But uh, B, had a mission statement so that I could say yes to the right things and say no to the right things. And then really, I've, I've held firm and I've even clarified that mission statement as I've gone forward.
1: Awesome. I think that's really good advice. I love that. Absolutely, that's great. Uh,
0: and understanding how your your decisions at the beginning will impact your business and your and your uh, image in the future.
1: Yeah, the six pack shortcuts thing is a great great example. Actually, you know, we all know who really? that guy is. We've definitely yeah. all seen that on YouTube. Uh, you know, it's all it was on the home page for like five years straight.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everybody was doing those tell rows, working up a real sweat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: It's also about, you know, choosing what you do with your time, you know, not just your yes. image, right? Is this, does this serve my mission? Could I be spending this next hour
2: doing something else that would better and, serve? And my this is a, is a, that's a really good point. As a small aside, I went from uh, having about 40, 30 to 40 to 45 oh, ish online clients as a part of 3dmusclejourney.com. I had to do it one more time. Um, never heard of it. Yeah, I I think you did 10 minutes ago, if you're paying attention. Um, But I changed to now having maybe just a couple of clients at most five at any given time and doing more stuff like this, because I felt if I wanted to make the largest positive impact, I'm probably better served speaking uh, in more theoretical, general uh, terms to a larger audience, Uh, and then serving as a science officer to 3DMJ to make sure that the coaches who really just are in enjoying being coaches, not that I don't enjoy it. It's just, I don't feel I can help 40 people at any given time mm-hmm. really, really well. Uh, but I think the net benefit of what I can do, if I'm reaching a larger number than that, uh, doing things like podcasts, writing books, etc. if I have those skills, which I've spent a stupid amount of time, you know, getting really good at to 10, then why not, uh, you know, leverage it in that manner. So I exactly, uh, as, as things evolve, as you evolve, as, as you find you've painted yourself into a corner, um, you, you might decide to change things. And I think you need to be open to that as well.
0: Yeah. I can relate to that a, a lot. It's kind of why I chose my, my career path and didn't even take my lesson sure exam as a PT. Cause yeah, I got into it wanting to help people, but then I was like, okay, how many people can I, can I actually help being a PT eight people a day? 12 people a day versus building an audience and actually speaking about, I'm passionate about and potentially helping hundreds of thousands of people. So I can relate to that. Hey, so we're coming on the, uh, an hour and a half mark and I don't want to take too much of your time.
1: We we did want to talk about nutrition, but I think,
0: I think we need to do a round two.
1: Yeah. We might have to bring you back for a round two for that one. Can I ask one last question before we let him go? Absolutely. Yeah. All right.
4: Uh, so, you know, I've been following you since the Matt Oges days. You know, I watched the the video of the Q and a of you eating a frillio right before the video as a, you know, as a a moment to reminisce on where this all started, but you know, you've been kind of one of the pioneers for nutrition coaching online. Um, and one of the things that that Stephanie used words to describe you was integrity, um, which I totally respect and why, you know, I've been kind of in your shadow or trying to be in your shadow for a very long time. Um, but one of the things that you've done over the years is kind of move away from you know this metric-based you know IFYM macro counting is the end all be all to solve everything um, to more of a behavior, social, uh, you know view on nutrition, um, w- which has been amazing. You know I, I truly respect that. Um, but my question is like, what has been the backlash from you know the other nutrition coaches online because you've kind of taken away you know, their easy peasy, you know, money maker. here's your, your custom macronutrient profile, or here's your meal plan. Well, what is it? What has that been like for you? I don't think that's a question that people really asked or, you know, even thought of the, the backlash, the resistance you got from the industry itself that ever come up, or have you thought about that?
2: I mean, there may be some backlash out there. I don't typically Google like account sucks or anything yeah. like that to find you know, out all the
4: Instagram coaches, right? Like you kind of, the, the, the information you're putting out, is kind of putting those people not, I don't want to say out of business, but you know, it's, it's kind of pushing them out and making them change the way that they do things for the better or pushing them out completely.
2: Yeah. I am. I'm at the very least as the kids say, putting them on blast. Um, <laughs> do, kids, do kids still say that or I say that. Okay, cool. That's what matters, right? I mean, I I have not had much flashback. I think I've had a lot of people who and it's probably because of the I think think a lot of the people who follow me, they're not purposely attempting to do that. You know, Um, I think a lot of times if people knew better, they would do better. I don't think there's quite as many bad actors in our industry as we think there are. I think there's a lot of people who are trying to help people but don't know better you know? And when I started with the fit, fit your macros, I, it was, I was like a panacea, flexible dieting, but I didn't realize that flexible is related to what you feel is rigid. So essentially my nutrition coaching trajectory has followed my relationship with food (laughs) from being an insane bodybuilder to someone who has, you know, maybe a slightly healthy relationship with it now. So yeah, compared to only eating yams tuna, chicken breasts, and broccoli, counting macros is super flexible. But then when you've done it for five to seven years, and you need a food scale to go out to eat, you start to realize, hold on, I'm still weird. And, and I have problems. <laughs> um, and as you learn more about that, you know, then then, then you can be more helpful. So I think I didn't, I'm just glad I didn't do a whole lot of damage with that. I did some don't get me wrong when I was really, really into the macro tracking because I didn't purely have a bodybuilding audience. But for most of the time I was helping people with a rigid meal plan become more flexible, which is great. But I think I've just kind of continued that, that uh, story arc, if you will. And now I've come to realize that nutrition is a part of our culture it's how we we literally break bread with others you know I think you I say this all the time but if you insert any ethnicity and put the word grandmother after it that's someone who's gonna feed you right or then that's Italian anything literally like like Mexican you know Russian whatever that's someone who who's gonna feed you that that's the way we connect it is a part of family holidays, everything. So when you start messing with people's nutrition, you're messing with their life. And I think that's just something I want to help people understand. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, if they're on a strict, crazy, clean eating meal plan, you go to fit your macros, it's a nice step in the right direction. But I think just understanding it more. So I haven't experienced much backlash. The friction I've experienced has largely come from coaches who feel like you took away their tool, right? Mm -hmm. I knew what I was doing. And now this guy I've been following this, this educator of coaches just told me that tool's actually giving people eating disorders and, and causing problems. And that's not really what I'm saying. It's much more nuanced than that. And there still is a role for tracking macros. Don't get me wrong. There are times I, I still do it with many clients all the time. And I recommend it for certain specific uh, goals. Um, but when you tell someone who feels they have confidence has a working system is getting their clients uh, outcomes that, that are, that are, they are ostensibly what they desire. Oh, by the way, you're also really causing other potential issues. And that doesn't work the way you think it works. That's like having the bottom drop out from underneath you. That's your whole coaching paradigm. If you, that's the primary thing you do. So I've tried, and I, I think this might be why I haven't gotten much flashback to not just be the, the whack-a-mole myth buster. Like, guess what? If it your macro's bad, see you next time. You know, <laughs> I've also given, huh. and here's what you do, you know? Um, so hopefully I've been, I've been providing tools, not just taking them away.
1: Mm
4: The social
1: Offer also. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's a great place to put a pin in the discussion and we'll save the rest of the nutrition talk for uh Round two.
0: Yeah, Eric, I feel so grateful and so lucky to to know you and to be able to bring you onto this podcast. I think that what you guys are, you and your guys are doing over at 3DMJ is absolutely fantastic, and you're you are impacting the lives of many many people in in a positive way, and you're and you're pioneering not only pioneering things, but like making science easy to understand and allowing people to be able to apply these you know, comp- more complex topics to their lives. And it's, it's amazing. So
1: well, I, I, I heard you, the you mentioned some company, you started with a number, might've been a four. <laughs> where Where can people find you guys at? <laughs>
2: You can find us at 3dmusclejourney.com, that That is the number three, the letter D followed by muscle journey. We should start a higher dimensional muscle
3: journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like eleven dimensions of muscles. Yeah, if
2: we if we really want to get into yeah, the that like realm, the realm, realm. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Thank like you so much. The, the number of,
2: yeah, it's it's three D muscle journey, but only if it's in that <laughs> quantum state. Other times yeah. it's like something else.
1: And yeah. where can they find you personally?
2: Uh, Personally, yeah, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. Uh, And if I can just say real quick that when you first, Steffi, when you you were interested in being an affiliate on my you came on the iron culture podcast you can ask barb the amount of fanboying that happens in <laughs> those moments was probably embarrassing for most but uh, i think appropriate uh, in you're this making case. Me so I, I very much see it as a huge honor to come on <laughs> and i thank you for, for asking me to be here. Your true oh,
0: you're the best yeah thanks for coming and, on and also for our listeners make sure you subscribe to mass
2: Hey you want to stay up with the science monthly applications and strength sport you can find a link there on our education tab or products tab i think at 3dmostdermody.com nice little one-stop shop and it's
1: it's just it's only 10 bucks a month right
2: uh, it's uh, depending on when you sign up because we do have two big sales per year around Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and also our anniversary sale, which just passed, unfortunately, uh, which is normally in uh, late late April. We we get it gets down to the lowest it is, which is around like twenty bucks a month. Oh,
1: I, I think can, I must that. have signed up
2: like You get the annual or the lifetime, then. and then it's really really cheap. Yeah, yeah, go so for that, that lifetime.
0: Yeah, I have it too. Dude, it's so great because not only do you guys do, you know, just paper reviews, but the videos are my favorite part. It's a, it's a, it's a classroom, you know,
2: you guys I appreciate that. The video department, myself and Dr. So I'll pass that on to him in our next uh, team meeting. Yeah. The audio
4: round tables are also really great that I don't think that people know about.
2: Word. Yeah. There's a lot of people who don't know we do those, but yeah, you can find for every written article. Since I think halfway through year one, uh, there's at least two of us talking about the the the, uh, the one in, in more of kind of like a verbal conversational abstract.
0: Yeah. So sign up for us. Awesome having you, Eric. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll have to do part two for sure.
2: Yeah. You know I'm down. Mm-hmm. Love to. Truly a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much.
2: All uh, right. Thank you. Take
0: care.